listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Mark Kirkendall. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Let me say good morning. And my name is Mark Kirkendall. I'm one of the leaders here at the White House campus. If We have not uh, met, and we want you to know, if you're a guest with us today, we are so thankful that you are here, Uh, but we believe it is by no accident. We believe before the foundations of the world that God knew who would be here this day on October the 7th, and He has something uh, for us. So this morning, I want to invite you in your Bibles to John chapter 3, and I come this morning with some very different emotions. On one side, I'm very excited. It is a fascinating chapter. It's got this incredible uh, exchange interaction between Jesus and this religious leader. Uh, And it's really interesting to see these two men in the conversation they're going to have. It's one of those passages that it's got the most probably familiar verse in all the Bible. that You probably memorized it as a child. Uh, But then on the other hand, I'm totally terrified uh, because it's one of those that we know that we, man, we have to get right, that this passage today holds the truth, uh, the bedrock truth of what is important about the Christian faith. It talks to us about everything that we need to know to believe in Jesus Christ and to experience eternal life. So on one hand, there's this excitement, there's this joy to it, and on the other side, I'm absolutely terrified. Woke up at 3 o'clock this morning, don't know if it was the barbecue I ate last night, or just the Holy Spirit waking me up going, hey, it's time. Uh, So we're going to look at this this morning in John chapter 3. So we left last week, and we saw this scene with this very passionate Jesus. He goes to the temple And he just wreaks havoc. In fact, he stops the Passover celebration all by himself because of how they were mistreating his father's house. Well, some time passes. We're not for sure how much. But a religious leader approaches Jesus, and he's got these questions that we will look at. But Jesus will look deep into his soul, and he will answer this man's questions, and he will shatter this man's foundation of what he believes to be true. And it is the very best thing that could happen to this man. So John chapter 3, let's get to know him. And this is how it reads in verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And so Nicodemus, there's three major things about this man that are helpful for us to understand. One is he is serious about religion. I mean, if you've ever met somebody that was passionate about someone or something, I mean, this man is serious about religion. And so what is a Pharisee? You might have heard that that term. Well, in this time, there was a group of about 6,000 men that were extremely devoted to following God's law in the Old Testament to the T. I mean, these men dedicated their lives to make sure they were following this law absolutely perfectly. Now, let me explain a little bit about what that was, because you take the law, the Judaism belief taught that you had 613 commands, and you needed to obey each and every one of them. 248 things you should do, 
and 365 don'ts. And each and every day, these men, this was their life's purpose, was to follow this law to the T. In fact, they were the ones that would come up with, well, we need to make sure everyone else does this. Therefore, they started making additional laws to help you understand what you needed to do to make sure you did not disobey this certain law. So let me explain a couple of them I found this week. You've heard keep the Sabbath and keep it holy. Well, that meant no work. Well, you might have a definition of work, and you might have one, and you might have one. So the Pharisees would decide, then what is work? So they came up with, well, what about tying a knot? You know, if I needed to tie a knot, and they said it was work to tie a knot to a bucket, lower it down to draw water that day. So you had to make sure you had all the water before the Sabbath. But a woman could tie a knot for her clothing. So they found a loophole. If I needed water and I'd ran out, I'd call my wife in, have her tie a knot, run the rope through that bucket through that, lower it down, bring the water up. Well, what about then carrying food? They said, if what you know we have to eat, what about food? Well, you could carry the amount of food as long as it weighed less than a dried fig. And you could carry enough milk, enough that you could swallow in one gulp. And so this is what they did. They were so dedicated to the law. Now, does it sound ridiculous? Absolutely. But that is how serious and passionate they were of making sure they get this Right. But another thing about Nicodemus is he was morally uh, upstanding. When I think about my generation, the people I watched grow up, I mean, it would be like I'd always heard the stories and read about the morality, the superiority of, of like Billy Graham, that, you know, he never said anything against anyone. He always made sure he was keeping himself pure, that he was just morally upstanding. And this would have been Nicodemus. In his life, no scandals whatsoever. No skeletons in his closet. If you had the FBI go do a background check on him, nothing but positive things would come up if it was Nicodemus. You ask him a question, he's going to tell you the truth. You can trust his word each and every time. But he was also an influential leader. Notice he said that he was a leader of the Jews. So not only was he a part of this 6,000 Pharisees group of religious men, of that 6,070 were a part of a group called the Sanhedrin. And they were this elite group that led by the high priest, and they governed Israel. So this man here, take like our U.S. Congress and our Supreme Court, put them together, and that is what he was a part of, this Sanhedrin group. So he would be the man you put, uh, we used to call them pulpit committees or search committees to go look for a, a pastor of some church. Nicodemus would be at the top of everyone's list. He's a passionate leader. He is dedicated. He is morally upstanding. There isn't anything in his past you have to worry about. He was someone you could always count on. Notice what happens in verse 2. And now a man, this man, Nicodemus, came to Jesus, and notice when he came. He's coming to him at night. So here's what we begin to see is that he is curious, but he's cautious. I mean, he has a lot on the line here. I mean, he's well-liked. Uh, he is well-respected. He has a lot of authority. And he's curious. He wants to know more, more, but he's not quite ready to lay it all out on the line. There is this uncertainty about where this might lead. 
And so he conceals his identity by coming to him at night. He's not quite ready to lay all his cards out on the table. But here's what Nicodemus doesn't realize. This is about to be the most important meeting of his life. So he looks to Jesus and he says to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. So he comes to him and says, Rabbi, which is like teacher or professor. And he comes to him and it's a sign of respect. But he's hoping to exchange like philosophical religious ideas. I have yours, you have mine. Hey, let's sit down, let's discuss these things. But he also says, we know that you are from God. So he doesn't see Jesus as the prophet or a prophet. He doesn't call him the Messiah, but he sees him as a teacher that has this special, you might say anointing. He's empowered by God. He recognizes there's something about him. Well, why is that? He he tells us that, well, because no one can do these signs. And we're not for sure how many. We know we've got the wedding at Cana. Uh, There's obviously some other signs that have either gone on that Nicodemus heard about or maybe he witnessed, but he watches these things happen and he realizes, wait, there's something special about this man. I can't quite put my finger on it, but there's something about him. But here is what is so fascinating about Jesus. Imagine this scene. You come and you have worked out your introduction for days. Practice it in the mirror. You've got it down right. You don't want to look stupid So you go up to him, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher, come from God. No one can do these signs unless God is with him. And then all of a sudden, Jesus launches into something that Nicodemus hasn't even brought up yet. He answers his question before Nicodemus even asks it. And it's in verse 3. So you've done your introduction, feeling pretty good about yourself, you're getting ready. And all of a sudden, Jesus looks at him and says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. I mean, Nicodemus had to be looking around going, is there somebody behind me? Because I had no idea that you were about to launch into this definition. But here's what is unique about Nicodemus. Nicodemus has got this question in his mind. Jesus looks at him and says, no one will enter the kingdom unless he is born again. Or if you've got a footnote there, it really could mean born from above. In Nicodemus, there is no doubt in his mind that he is going to be a part of God's kingdom. Absolutely no doubt. Because Nicodemus, his entire life, he has been assuming that his religious credentials, his natural bloodline, His obedience to the commands of God guarantees him a place in God's kingdom that he will get to see it. His whole life he knows this. And in one sentence, Jesus takes a sledgehammer and shatters his entire foundation. Everything that Nicodemus has been building his life on, and Jesus tells him he's wrong. He looks at Nicodemus and tells him, listen, you've missed it. There's only one way to enter the kingdom of heaven. There's only one way you get to see it. And the only way is for you to be born again or born from above. This is the only way, he says to heaven. It's the only way. It's not through your bloodline. It's not on how well you, you keep the Old Testament laws. It's not based on how well you've lived your life and stayed out of trouble. 
Not based on how many scriptures you know or how much money you've given to the temple. Because Nicodemus would have shined above everyone else in that. But have you ever had that happen? It's just what happens that you've got this strong belief. And man, you believe it deep down in your bones. And all of a sudden, someone comes and challenges that belief. You'll do one of two things. You'll either dig in your heels, you get argumentative, you get defensive, and you will do everything you can to convince yourself that you are right. All you got to do is watch modern day politics. Or, in the very few cases, it seems like, when our beliefs are challenged, we're humbled, and we think, okay, maybe I need to examine this a little bit more. Maybe, just maybe, I could be wrong. Well, let's see which response Nicodemus takes in verse 4. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Now, you might read that. I actually could think, well, I might can make both cases. Maybe he's being argumentative. Maybe he's being sarcastic. Or maybe he really is wanting to look into this. Well, I think the keys are what John shows us throughout the gospel. You're going to see Nicodemus two more times. You're going to see him in John chapter 7 where he stands up against the Sanhedrin and says, no, we need to hear this man out before we cast judgment. And then you will see him in John chapter 19 where Joseph of Arimathea goes and asks for Jesus' body to bury it out of respect. And guess who's with him? You find Nicodemus there. So I believe Nicodemus, I don't believe he's being defensive. I don't believe he's being sarcastic. I think he is deeply contemplating these words. There is nothing more that he wants than to enter the kingdom of heaven. He wants nothing more than to see that one day. In fact, I think he's been living his entire life in pursuit of that. That is his greatest desire. But you might as well be telling a full-grown man that he's got to climb back into his mother's womb and be born again. In his mind, it's that impossible. He doesn't even have a category for that. His whole life has been set up of achieving this entrance. He was a part of God's chosen people. He'd be living in law. He kept himself pure. He's serving through the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin. But now he is faced with something that seems absolutely impossible. And Jesus is the only way you're going to see the kingdom, Nicodemus, is by being born from above. He thought it was about keeping law, a list of commands, but the new birth, being born again, it's not something that's accomplished by human energy or achievement. So Jesus is then going to explain to him, then how does this birth happen? In verse 5, Jesus begins. He answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind, it blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from. And where it goes, so is with anyone who is born of the Spirit. So Jesus presents him with three major truths about this being born from above, being born again. He says, first of all, it's born of water and 
the Spirit. If you're not careful, a lot of people will twist that verse to try to make the case that you have to be baptized in order for your salvation to really be complete. But in context, exactly what he is referring to, he's going back to John the Baptist. He's saying, remember the message of the one crying out in the wilderness? It is a message of repentance that John was bringing. And so he's saying to be born again is not simply, uh, in our day, asking Jesus into your heart. Being born again is this radical change that takes place in a person's life where repentance, by the work of the Spirit, it creates this totally new reality. It's the Spirit that creates the new birth. It's something that happens to us, not something that we do. The Spirit, it makes a person alive. It makes them new from the inside. The new birth happens when God's Spirit makes a person alive to the things of God. And I don't know if you've ever had the privilege of watching that happen. Of somebody that wants nothing to do with the things of the spiritual word, of the things of God, the things of the Scripture. And all of a sudden, the Spirit moves in their life and it's like they can't get enough. You see what's happening is that when you see this interest of spiritual things, of things happening, I believe that's truth that the Spirit is actually working in a person's life. And he says when the Spirit moves, men they're moved by this idea of needing to repent and wanting to repent. And then he says flesh brings flesh and Spirit brings Spirit. He's saying your flesh, it cannot produce a Spirit-filled life. You can't do it. Only the sovereign work of the Spirit is what creates that. But then he says, the Spirit is like the wind. So the Spirit, it, it can't be controlled. You can't manipulate it. You can't make it do what you want it to do. You won't even completely understand it. Because he says it's like the wind. And the wind, it blows where it pleases. In other words, we can't do anything to make ourselves come spiritually alive. What must happen for us to enter God's kingdom, he tells us, is something that we are unable to do. And I think this is the part right here that makes us really uncomfortable. It's because we like being in charge. I mean, we like being in control of our own destinies. I like to be the one that decides things, that then brings me these things that I've made decisions about. But the truth is, you can't do anything to enter God's kingdom. You can't keep enough rules. You can't give enough money. You can't attend enough church services. You can't walk enough aisles. You can't memorize enough scriptures. Because think about it, it's just like with your spiritual birth. I mean, your physical birth. What did you do to make that happen? Absolutely nothing. It wasn't up to you. You were born in the family you were in. You had nothing to do with that. You cannot create in yourself the idea to be spiritually alive. The only way to be born from above is the Spirit of God has to do it. So if you're a Christian, you know what that means? It means that you didn't become one by, because you're particularly good or, or talented or even lovable. You're a Christian because the Spirit of God blew where it wished and it wished to blow inside your soul. You might be sitting there going, you know, I'm not a Christian. Well, you don't become one by working and by effort and um, by just sacrificing certain things. 
but you pray. You pray for God to send His Spirit like a wind and to blow through your dead heart and to make it alive. So then the question I think has to be, because Jesus answers it, well, how do I know that happened? I mean, how do you know that happened even in someone else's life? How, how do you know the Spirit is moved? Because we can't control it. We can't fully understand it. But He says you can see the effects. Just like the wind. You can see the wind blowing the limbs of a tree. You can hear the sound at times. You can see it moving the, the clouds across the sky. So when the Spirit breathes into a person's soul, there is unmistakable evidence. And you know what the very first evidence of the Spirit moving in someone's life is? Scripture tells us it's belief in Jesus. That when the Spirit blows through a person's heart, they are born again, and when they are born again, they believe in Jesus Christ. You'll understand that He came from heaven to be born as a man and you will put your faith and trust in Him. But know this, is I think in our day and time that it's almost like we present this a certain way, and it's not like a respect for Jesus. I mean, everybody likes Jesus. He's not really done anything to offend most people. It isn't even having a, a good opinion of Him. It will be a wholehearted, life-giving, eternally securing faith in Jesus. But you might be thinking, man, I'm thankful that this has happened in my life. I mean, you're pursuing spiritual things. Or you might be thinking, man, I don't know, I've been coming around this place for a while and become friends with a few people around here, but man, I'm not quite sure yet. You might be thinking, man, what does it really mean? I mean, what's going to really change about my life? And you don't understand, I have so many questions you're not supposed to have all these questions if you're doing this thing. Well, notice what Nicodemus does. In verse 9, Nicodemus again says, how can these things be? You see, belief, belief is not coming to Jesus and getting all your questions answered. In fact, belief, belief is not coming even with all the answers. In my life, my experience, a lot of times belief is coming with your questions. And you know what happens? You leave with more questions. But asking the questions, I believe, is evidence of the Holy Spirit working. And I think that is where we see Nicodemus. In fact, for a second time, when he says, how can this be? I believe Nicodemus is coming to the end of himself. And everything he'd been building his life on, everything he'd been trusting in, he is finally seeing it, breaking it down, and he is thinking, how in the world? This is bigger than anything I could ever imagine. Because he's coming, and he's looking at Jesus, and he comes to Jesus not because he's convinced of who he is, but he comes because he wants to know who he is. And asking the questions can be evidence of the Holy Spirit working. So you know what Jesus graciously does? He goes back into the Old Testament where Nicodemus is comfortable. Look at verse 10. And Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel? Which he was. And yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen. 
but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, then how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And what he does, he goes back to Numbers chapter 22. The children of Israel, they've been set free from bondage. They're wandering around in the wilderness. And all of a sudden, they're unhappy and they start grumbling. Why'd God bring us out here if he's just going to let us die? And God sends poisonous snakes to attack the people. So just be thankful that we're not dealing with that in our rebellion today. These snakes, they're biting and people are dying. There's absolutely no escape. They can't do anything to save themselves. You can't kill them all. There's too many. You can't dig a hole big enough and, and I don't know if you can chase snakes. I've never tried that. Chase a snake into a hole. You can't move. They're everywhere. So what does God do? The people repent. Message of the water. And Moses goes before God and God tells Moses to take in fashion, build a snake up on a pole. If a snake bites you, you look up on the pole and it says you would live. So Jesus uses this to show Nicodemus that his biggest problem is something that he cannot fix. The snakes in this story represent his biggest problem and your biggest problem and my biggest problem. They represent sin. And Israel's absolutely only hope from that snake biting them was to gaze upon the pole. Nicodemus, his only hope from sin is going to be to gaze upon Jesus, the one who would one day hang upon another pole on Calvary. And that's our only hope as well. All of mankind has been consumed by sin. And the only cure is to look upon the Son of Man dying on the cross and find life through believing in Him. And then John, he adds the verse that we all love, the section that many have memorized and many have preached, and here's how it reads. So keeping all of that in mind, he then says, For God so loved the world. Past tense. He loved you before you would ever love Him. He loved you before you would ever even have an interest in Him. He loved you before you would ever cry out, Save me. In fact, He loved you when you were an enemy of His. And that He gave His only Son. It doesn't require you to purchase this or to earn it. It is an absolutely free gift, but it's not cheap. The gift, what does it cost you? Absolutely nothing. But it cost His Son his life. But he lovingly, he willingly gave his son that whosoever believes in him, meaning there isn't anyone that is beyond hope. No matter how bad you have made a mess of things, I mean, no matter how horrible your life has turned out, no one is beyond the reach of God's grace that should not perish but have eternal life. And in just seven words, he shows us two stark differences of realities. There are two eternities, an eternal punishment and eternal life. And each and every person faces this reality. 
Everyone, no matter how morally good they may seem, whoever rejects Jesus Christ will spend eternity in hell. So either trust Jesus Christ and you get to enjoy eternal life in his father's house, or you reject the truth and eternally suffer in hell. And here's the truth. Either Christ pays for your sins on the cross, or you will pay them, and it will take you an eternity to do so. But he goes on to say, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world. Now, how many times is that thrown into someone's face? Hey, you're not supposed to condemn people. You know why Jesus doesn't come into the world to condemn? He doesn't have to. You've already condemned yourself. You're already guilty. Jesus doesn't have to do that. We are all condemned and guilty of sin. But in order that the world might be saved through him, whoever believes in him, that the new birth, it happens by simple gaze upon Jesus, not a perfect faith, not a faith with all the answers, and not a faith that never questions or doubts. And then he concludes, is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than light because their works are evil. For everyone who does what is wicked... Things hates the light and does not come into the light, lest his works be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes into the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out by God. So the good news is that we no longer have to be condemned. You don't have to let the snake kill you. You don't have to die in your sin. So God's action in the crucifixion of Jesus, man, it plants this sign in the middle of history. And it says, look, believe, live. So if you're here this morning and you would say you're a Christian, you're a believer, know this. It is only because of the regenerating new birth that the Spirit creates. It's not something that you caused. It's, it's not something that you went and earned. The Spirit blows where it blows. And just like you had nothing to do with your physical birth, you know what? You're here today and you're living in that. You're walking in that. And it's the same thing spiritually. You, you don't cause it, but when it happens, you now walk in that truth. Be thankful today for the Spirit's work in your life. But maybe you're here today and you're a lot like Nicodemus. You want to change. You want your life made new. You want to know what it means to be born again. You want this thing that's called eternal life in the Father's house. But maybe you're nervous. Maybe you're unsure of what the ramifications might be. You're not for sure how to feel or what to say. You want to believe, but you still have all of these unanswered questions. Know that belief is not having all the answers. Christ welcomes you to evaluate and to search just like Nicodemus did. He didn't come to Jesus because he was convinced of who he was. He comes to him because he wants to know who he is. So if you're asking questions this morning, 
Man, I think that's proof of the Spirit working in your life. So I think John would say, look to Jesus this morning. Repent of your sins and ask God's Spirit to give you the faith to believe. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.